Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. So, first thing, He is a humble king. He is a humble king. Bethlehem was not Jerusalem. Bethlehem was actually a has-been town. It was where David was born, and that was kind of its peak. (laughs) And then once Jerusalem became the capital, everyone forgot about Bethlehem for the most part. The wise men went to the center of royalty in Judea, and apparently that was the wrong place to look for Jesus. The nativity narrative is constantly pointing out the humble circumstances of his birth. He was born to an unwed, non-royal couple. He was born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough for animals. This was a king that didn't need to impress with his splendor, his wealth, or his clothes. Jesus was and is a humble king. And as an adult, Jesus claimed this of himself. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what are a few things that the humble king might say to us today? Just listen to the Holy Spirit. Affluence or ease does not indicate my favor or my presence. Affluence or ease does not indicate my favor or my presence. Secondly, you can truly rest because you don't need to impress me. When you understand his humility, you can truly rest because you don't need to impress me. And thirdly, if you're like me, and you know that humility is not one of my main strengths, not one of my core strengths in my life, I'm glad that he says to us, you can learn humility from me. You can learn humility from me. So that's our humble king. Secondly, he's a new king. He's a new king. Let's talk about the magi. I know we call them wise men, but I'm not so sure. They walk into Jerusalem into the throne room of King Herod, and then they ask, so where's the new king? Wise men? I mean, I think these are more like astronomy geeks. You know, they had NASA hoodies and things. They like Star Wars. I mean, okay, if you, if you had an audience with Rishi Sunak this week, I dare you to ask him, so who's the next prime minister? I mean, you might think it, but don't say it, right? Don't, don't say it, wise men, right? So the problem is obvious. We, there already was a king of the Jews, but Jesus was a new king. And this wasn't the first time Bethlehem played host to a new king. Why did Joseph and Mary travel to Bethlehem? It's because Joseph was of the house and line of King David. So David was a shepherd boy born in Bethlehem who was anointed king. Only one problem, there already was a king, Saul. It took a few decades after that anointing for David to actually rule as king of Israel. So the implication is clear. Bethlehem's king is a new king. 
He's a different king from the one currently on the throne. In other words, Jesus is an usurper. He is taking over from the current authority. And King Herod understood this immediately, which is why he sent people to kill him. And with a view of the total biblical picture, the total biblical history, we know that Jesus and his rule extends to eternity past as well as eternity future. So he was actually the rightful king usurping the usurper. You following me? So responding to Bethlehem's king, Bethlehem's new king, means having to decide where our loyalties lie. And that's, that's just the simple truth. Responding to Bethlehem's new king means we have to decide where our loyalties lie. So, what might the new king say to us today? So, ears, ears open, right? What might the Holy Spirit, through the new king, say to us? Number one, who or what is ruling your life? Who or what is ruling your life? Is it fear? Is it addiction? Is it the opinions of others? There's a new king. Are you trying to, ru- to rule your own life? There's a new king. Another thing he might say to us is this. Where do you feel threatened by me? Where do you feel threatened by me? And this isn't a threat. This is a reflection question. Are there parts of my life that I don't want to give over to him because I'm afraid of what he'll ask of me? Here's a tip. Remember, he's a humble king, so we don't have to fear. But he is a king, and this is a truth intention. He's a humble king, but he is a king. And lastly, you can trust me Because I give my power away. You can trust me because I give my power away. He's not like earthly rulers who accumulate power. He shares his authority with his people. I see you. We have authority for spiritual warfare because he gives his power away. So Bethlehem's king is a humble king and he's a new king. So what other ideas would have been activated in the mind of a person just soaked in Old Testament scriptures? Um, Did you know that there's actually a book of the Old Testament that is almost entirely set in Bethlehem? Almost the entire, entire narrative is in Bethlehem. Any guesses? Ruth. The book of Ruth is entirely set in Bethlehem. And so the next two aspects, we're going to kind of look at Ruth. And I don't have time to read you the book of Ruth today, so I'm going to summarize it. The book of Ruth starts with a family of four from Bethlehem that moved to Moab, which is outside of Israel, because of a famine. It's a mom and dad and two sons. Both sons end up marrying Moabite women, and Ruth is one of these women. Tragically, all the men in the family end up dying, and so Ruth is now a young widow. Since the famine has ended, she decides to move move with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem. But in Bethlehem, she is a foreigner with no standing, no income, and no prospects. Which kind of sounds like the beginning of a Jane Austen novel. I think if Jane Austen would write a book of the Bible, it would be Ruth. So enter Mr. Darcy, I mean Boaz. Long story short, Boaz, the kind, older, wealthy landowner. I mean, it's just just totally. Anyway, he ends up marrying Ruth and providing for her and Naomi. And Boaz and Ruth end up being the great-grandparents of King David. 
And Bethlehem is the backdrop for all of this. It's the Longbourn and the Pemberley of the story. So what are the implications of the book of Ruth for Bethlehem's king? First of all, he is the king of all nations. He is the king of all nations. Ruth is the story of a foreigner who becomes included in the family of God. Not just in the family of God, but in the lineage of King David and of Jesus himself. And Matthew calls this out at the beginning of his gospel. Matthew chapter 1 starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And generally, Matthew just lists the male genealogy. But he does call out three women. One is Mary, and the other two are both non-Israelites. Ruth is one of them. Anyone know the other one? Did I hear it? Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who was actually Boaz's mother. So a generation before Boaz and Ruth, there was a war going on. Joshua and the Israelites were facing off against the inhabitants of Jericho. And here's what happened in Joshua chapter 5. This is verses 13 through 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? I love that. Are you for us or for our enemies? And Joshua's question shows a few assumptions. First of all, we're the good guys. And the other side are the bad guys. And secondly, everyone else, God or human, needs to declare what side they're on. And, and the question is, who's he talking to? Well, he's at, at minimum, he's talking to a divine messenger. It's possible he's talking to a pre-incarnate Christ here. Either way, here's the response. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. The natural thinking for humanity is this. It's us versus them, and God's on my side. And this reasoning has been used to justify all kinds of hatred and violence throughout history, from social media debates to actual genocide. And in Joshua's case, although Jericho did need conquered, they weren't all the enemy. Boaz's mom lived there. The bloodline of David and therefore the bloodline of Jesus ran through the veins of Jericho. They are not the enemy. Here's the reality. Ephesians 6:12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Which means the reality is we fight with Jesus against a spiritual enemy for the sake of all humanity. We fight with Jesus against a spiritual enemy for the sake of all humanity. If Bethlehem's king is the king of all nations, we must resist the urge to define ourselves by who we are against. Because Jesus is their king too. Yes, the baby born in Bethlehem is the king of Israel, but he's also the king of all the nations. It's in his lineage. Gentiles from Persia came to pay their respects. And the angels don't say, peace to Israel, goodwill to Israelites. They say, peace on goodwill to all humanity. So what might the king of all the nations say to us today? First of all, I'm their king too. I'm their king too. Whoever 
your gut says is the enemy, Jesus is their king too. Secondly, guard your heart against all forms of racism. I'm their king too. Thirdly, this may be self-serving, but welcome immigrants and foreigners. Welcome immigrants and foreigners. I'm their king too. And primarily, we're talking about heart and actions, not government policy. It's easy to think, oh, well, they need to fix that. We need to fix it in our hearts. And then if enough of us fix it in our hearts, government policy changes. And thirdly, please stop claiming that I'm on a side. Please stop claiming that I'm on a side. Now, I'm not saying that God is actively for or pro all agendas. He's only pro his own agenda. And I suspect that if we picked any human conflict, whether ideological or violent, and we could actually ask God what side he was on, we would hear the same answer as Joshua. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. I think that's his answer. So Bethlehem's king is a humble king. He's a new king. He's a king of all the nations, and he's a redeeming king. And we learn this from Ruth's story as well. You see, Ruth wasn't just a foreigner. She was a Moabite. And this is a particular problem because the Moabites treated the Israelites very poorly when they were journeying to the Promised Land. And because of this, God's law specifically stated in Deuteronomy 23 that no Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. And the 10th generation is a linguistic phrase that basically meant forever. So then, Ruth is part of a nation that was excluded from ever being a part of the religious life of Israel, and therefore excluded from the presence of God forever. And yet, this is the great-grandmother of King David. Is this a contradiction? Have we finally found one of those contradictions the Bible is famous for? Everyone says, it's full of contradictions. And here's a thought. I, I think, personally, whenever I run across a contradiction, I, I think, okay, this is an invitation to meditation. If there's a contradiction, this is an invitation to meditation. So let's look at this. Let's take a moment and pause. The law states that Ruth and those like her can never be in relationship with God or Israel because of their past sins. Do you know of anyone else that is separated from God because of their past sins? Me, you, and all of humanity. But there's another part of God's law, and this is a portion called the Kingsman Redeemer, the Kinsman Redeemer, that allows for the purchasing back of property that had been lost to a family because of a death. And the first recorded instance of this redemption taking place was when Boaz redeemed Ruth and her dead husband's property in Bethlehem. In other words, redemption started in Bethlehem. Scripturally, redemption started in Bethlehem. And for the Apostle Paul, he says this in Colossians 1, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, which he equates to the forgiveness of sins. That's what redemption is, the forgiveness of sins. When the angel appeared to Joseph, he was told in Matthew 1, She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because... He will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the name itself, means the Lord is salvation. Boaz redeemed Ruth with some money. 
But Jesus redeemed all of humanity at the cost of his own life. So what might the redeeming king say to us today as we listen to him? First of all, no one is too far gone to be redeemed, even you. No one is too far gone to be redeemed, even you. Secondly, your worth is determined by the price I paid for you. Your worth is determined by the price that I paid for you. And thirdly, everyone needs redeemed, especially you. Everyone needs redeemed, especially you. You know, the only way into redemption is to realize that we, like Ruth, have no standing. We have zero chance. If we think we're kind of halfway there, you're no way there. <laughs> we all need redeemed. Paul, Paul knew this. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is, I think, my favorite Pauline summary of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus may display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Okay, Bethlehem's king, he's a humble king, he's a new king, he's the king of all the nations. Thank the Lord he's a redeeming king. And I'm going to conclude this with an idea that was actually the seed for me for this, this whole sermon. Um, did you know that Bethlehem is mentioned all the way back in Genesis? If you haven't noticed, I've been walking my way backwards through the Old Testament. It was first in Genesis. I didn't know this, so I just ran across it in my devotional reading last month. Genesis chapter 48. This is after Jacob the patriarch had been reunited with his son Joseph in Egypt. And Jacob says this to his son in Genesis 48:7. As I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her, buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Rachel, if you don't know, was Joseph's mother. So here you have a conversation between father and son sharing a grief together. Earlier, God had given Jacob another name, Israel. So Bethlehem is introduced, introduced to us in Scripture literally as the place of Israel's sorrow. A place of loss and a place of shared grief. So lastly, he's a king of sorrows. He's a king of sorrows. Um, my wife Sheila's dad passed away this September, my father-in-law, and this is our first Christmas without him. And maybe in a decade we'll have a better perspective on this, but for now it's just hard. And in a crowd this size, I know we're not the only ones going through a first Christmas without a loved one. And whether we're separated by death or by estrangement, the holiday season can be a time of sorrows, but then we feel pressure to feel festive and joyful, which can set up a dissonance in our minds. And yes, joy is part of the story, but Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. When he was on earth, Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus passed away. And he wept over the people of Jerusalem who were willfully separating themselves from him by their choices. Yes, Jesus' arrival brought joy to the world, to Bethlehem. 
But from the first mention of it in Scripture, Bethlehem reminds us that he's also the king of sorrows. Jesus' birth enables joy in every circumstance, but it doesn't mandate 100% festivity all the time. Sometimes all we can do is rest in the possibility of joy. You know, looking back at the conversation that Jacob and Joseph were having, I find this a really touching moment of shared grief between father and son. And, and Joseph didn't try to distract Jacob by saying something like, well, Dad, you know, you thought I was dead, but now I'm alive, so don't think about Mom. He, he didn't do that. He, he, Jacob and Joseph, they let joy and sorrow coexist and mingle. So what might the king of sorrows say to us today? First of all, I think he would say this. I'm not disappointed by your sadness. I'm not disappointed by your sadness. Secondly, share your grief and allow grief to be shared. Share your grief and, and allow the grief of others to be shared with you. Thirdly, don't reject my gift of joy when it surprises you amid sorrow. Don't reject my gift of joy when it surprises you amid sorrow. You can let them coexist. Sometimes we add guilt on top of our grief when, a, when we do have a moment of happiness or a moment of festivity, and then we think, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. You, it's okay to be both. <laughs> it's okay to be both. Jesus was that way. And, thir- and lastly, I think he would say to us, I'm close to the brokenhearted. I'm close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So that's really all I have to share with you today. We're going to look up um, the next slide. Um, These are just the five things. And if we could just kind of spend a moment and just asking the Lord, okay, maybe maybe you want to remember them all, that's fine. You can take a photo and review it, but but what's the one thing? What's what kind of king do you need this Advent season? What kind of king do you need this Advent season? And let's just spend a moment and ask him those things. And if we could, let's just pray, and I'm just going to walk through the five things, and let's just thank him. Can we thank him that he's each of these things? Can we just have gratitude? Father, right now, we thank you that you sent your son as a humble king, that you were obedient all the way down. You became a servant. You were obedient all the way to death on a cross, and therefore you have been exalted, Jesus, to the highest heaven. We thank you for your humility, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for that. We thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you that you're a new king. We thank you that you've replaced the other authorities. We don't have to feel like anyone else is in charge other than you. And we do right now just choose to give our lives to you again. We, we, we step down from the throne of our lives and we give it to you, Jesus. 
We thank you, Lord, that you're king of all nations. There's no, there's no one that gets to claim that you are um, the, you're just for them. And we thank you that you've spoken through the, the, the people of Israel and you did a wonderful work in them and still do. But Lord, we are all your people. And we thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you are a redeeming king. Thank you for redeeming me, the worst of sinners. And we also thank you, Lord, that you understand our sorrows. Even in the middle of, a, of what is culturally a very festive time, God, I just pray that we would be able to rest. Even if that rest is in sadness, we can rest in the possibility of joy and not add guilt to any of that. And we thank you for what you're going to do. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.org.